0: Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things
1: that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems. Many of them overweight, even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn.
0: She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because. At the end of the day, that was going to be that all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation.
2: Within arm's reach are people who are hungry. And there is a anxiety and a stigma attached to that.
0: I'm here with Erwin Redliner, the founder of the Children's Health Fund. Irwin, we're glad to have you with
1: us. Very glad to be here, Billy. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Thanks. And Bryce Schumann, the chef at Bettany, who is uh, not only... Fed many people in New York, but fed children through his work and his commitment to the No Kid Hungry campaign. Bryce, great to have you here.
2: Hey, great to be here.
0: Let me start by telling you one thing that that you guys have in common a little bit, and I think this will be uh, something that we can come back to in the conversation, Uh, Erwin. You gave a speech, Erwin, at 11 Madison Park, the restaurant that Bryce worked at, for a dinner that Danny Meyer hosted. Um, It was called the Autumn Harvest Dinner. And I remember one of the things that was really unusual about this speech was that you brought a little plastic model of a brain with you and you explained to people (laughs) that you were talking about the importance of investing in kids early, which I know is a passion that both you and Bryce share because of Bryce's incredible commitment to share our strength. But you were talking about how the... Uh, the brain of a fetus at eight or nine weeks, I think you said is the, is the size of just kind of like one digit of a finger mm-hmm. and that the, uh, or that the fetus is that size and that the brain is actually the size of the fingernail. Yeah. And then you talked about how I think uh, when a child is 15, maybe their brain weighs three pounds. And your message to the audience was what happens between that fingernail sized yeah. brain and that brain at three pounds and the way we protect or don't protect A child's development really dictates almost the trajectory of their entire life. I don't know if Bryce was in the kitchen cooking that day, I can't remember the timing of the dinner, but um, Eleven Madison, uh, Danny Meyer's organization, Bryce and Irwin, you've all been formative in our work at Share Our Strength. So I want to come back and talk to that, but let's let's begin with you, Irwin, in terms of how you started this work. You founded the Children's Health Fund with the singer Paul Simon, and you've now got 50 locations around the country, either mobile or fixed, that are uh, serving hundreds of thousands of low-income kids who have right. no other alternative for health care.
1: Yeah. So this has been uh, really quite an adventure. And uh, you know, and, and basically, by the way, Billy, it all boils down to what you were talking about before, what we are doing generally as a society to nurture brain development, personality development of children who are so uh, so critical and so fragile in some ways. And there's so much that we can do to make sure that they do grow healthy, nourished, uh, psychologically good shape, etc. But the Children's Health Fund uh, really began because um, I had met Paul at, uh, during the uh, We Are the World, USA for Africa time, which is in the mid-80s when there was a gigantic famine as you're, uh, re- resulting from a drought in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Paul was one of the singers on that record, which raised about 57-58 million dollars at the time and I was director of grants and medical director uh, for the USA for Africa Organization so Paul and I met because he wanted to do something in the US he wanted some of the money raised by We Are the World to remain in, in the US particularly as a New Yorker he was concerned about the rise in homelessness among families in New York and uh, he basically inquired at USA for Africa headquarters said can I can we get 5 or 10% of the money let it stay in the US and they said no but you should meet Erwin Redliner he's in New York running our foundation and Grants Department, and I met him, and I he and I went on a tour of these unbelievably squalid, uh, collapsing shelters and hotels for families in New York City. Some were people were housed for eighteen months or two years in in, uh, in uh, the armory and uh, horrible hotel uh, single room occupancy hotel uh, situations, and. We, we saw many, many children that were obviously hungry. They weren't getting health care. They weren't going to school regularly. And uh, it was really it was a very intense day. And the worst part of it was uh, in the old ballroom, which was on the mezzanine floor, the Coalition for the Homeless was giving out what would be the one hot meal that uh, people would be able to get. And I looked up, and there was a line, as far as I could see, of children and their families waiting to get into this uh, into this room where they'd be served whatever they were going to get from the uh, from the coalition. Uh, and I had recently been in Ethiopia and Sudan and obviously, you know, hor- horrific experiences uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, what I was seeing in New York City was, even for me, having been around a lot, uh, was extremely unsettling and horrifying. Paul was basically speechless. And Paul said, what could we do? And I said, well, as a pediatrician, we could bring healthcare at the minimum to these children, and, so, or uh, when you were trained as a pediatrician. I am a, that, pedi- that, that, I am a pediatrician, okay. right? And uh, so th- that was my, you know, sort of the first place I went, and was obvious the kids needed a lot of healthcare access. Uh, when I had, when I was in Arkansas, which was my first job, running a community health center in East Arkansas. Uh, one of the issues that was uh, apparent to me was that people couldn't get to healthcare, and I did a lot of house calls in rural Arkansas in the early 70s. So we basically took that and modernized that concept by doing house calls, not just with a little black bag with uh, you know a few pieces of equipment in it, but we took the whole clinic with us, basically. So uh, I would go with my staff and... Uh, in arkansas and maybe one person we go out and make house calls to people that couldn't get to the clinic where we were when we came to new york and we decided to do this healthcare program we created a mobile pediatric clinic that karen Redmond and my wife actually designed paul simon paid for the first one and in 1987 we began bringing medical teams led by me as a pediatrician at that point um, to the welfare hotels and shelters in new york city and we now have, as you pointed out, we have 53 mobile medical units throughout the United States in 23 different programs. We see about 260, 270,000 encounters a year. We've seen probably 4 million encounters since we started. Um, so we're, we're very much into it, and we do very high-quality, high comprehensive health care for children. It's very advanced electronic medical record systems. And we define health care probably differently and more broadly than many pediatricians might. We think that nutrition is part of health care. We think that uh, psychological support and mental health services are part of health care. We think that dealing with the social environment for children who are living in the adversities associated with poverty is part of health care. So we have a broad vision of what we're talking about and uh, try to do that really with every family, every child that we see to, to have a comprehensive long-term view of what they need and, and stick with them. So you're talking about initially about the, the
0: drought and the famine that got you involved in this work. Initially, you're talking now about how nutrition is part of healthcare. care. Uh, this is where I think of Bryce's work because his commitment to share our strength has been so focused on our No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, Bryce, just as by way of kind of introducing yourself to our listeners, tell us a little bit about your trajectory. Uh, you didn't really start out to be a chef. You wanted to act when you were in yeah. in high school.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, well, I wanted to be an actor, and um, I'm not... I'm a horrible actor, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I needed a job, basically, and so I started washing dishes in a restaurant, and um, and I loved the culture of the kitchen, I loved that there's just all these incredibly exciting things going on, you know, there's delicious food, um, lots of fun people, very passionate people in the kitchen and restaurant uh, industry, I think people who, um, a lot of people who love excitement also are drawn to it, and there's a lot of action in a restaurant, you know, there's a lot of things going on, you know, fire and, you know desserts <laughs> and uh, you know different characters and stuff you find you meet the most incredible people i think in restaurants too just the they run the gamut um and where did diverse. you work first
1: i what was your first restaurant my first job?
2: restaurant job was at a half sports bar half italian restaurant in eastern north carolina and uh I got fired from that job, and then I started washing dishes at another restaurant where I met my wife, Um, and it was called Mesh Cafe in uh, eastern North Carolina, and we ended up moving to San, I I ended up moving to San Francisco to go to culinary school, and my wife moved out after she finished college, and I worked in restaurants there, Rubicon was one with Stuart Brioza and Nicole Krasinski, they now have State Bird Provisions, and the Progress, great restaurants in San Francisco, and then.
0: And at what, uh, at what point did you realize you had this really special talent for cooking? Food & Wine named you the uh, number one new chef of the year in 2015. You've got an incredibly successful restaurant at Betany, six years at 11 Madison, before that yep, as yep. executive sous chef. So at what point did it go from, you know, I like the the passion of restaurants to realizing that you've actually got some unique I think, gift?
2: you know, when I, when I decided to go to culinary school, I, that's when I decided, you know, I tried to make this decision. Am I going to go, am I going to pursue acting? Am I going to try to... You know, work on my monologues, go do some commercial work in Wilmington or something and apply again for these schools that I really wanted to get into? Or was I going to go to culinary school and pursue that? And I just loved the kitchen. And I think also the idea of going to culinary school really inspired me also. And I wanted to get as far away from Eastern North Carolina as possible. So I moved about as far as I could get um, geographically and culturally to San Francisco. It was like, the middle of a tobacco field, you know, in Pitt County, North Carolina to, you know, Polk and Turk, which is like the tenderloin of San Francisco is kind of a totally different atmosphere. So that really got me excited. And, you know, that's when I decided I was like, well, you know, maybe I have a shot at this thing. So I went to culinary school and then just kept my head down and worked really, really hard. And you know, there at uh, Love Madison Park is when I was first introduced to Share strength.
1: And how about you with your folks? I mean, you you've been in yeah, so Vista.
0: You became a Vista volunteer
1: at a pretty yeah. young age, right? Right. So, uh, and in my case, uh, so my mother was a teacher, and my dad was a very uh, social, socially active, progressive guy. You know, protesting everything from Vietnam and Watergate and all, all everything that was going on in the '60s and '70s, and uh, so. Uh, you just if you grow up in an environment where a, an important family value is caring about people outside of your own your own nuclear family, I think that that is a really important influence on things that people do when they when they get older. Even if there is not a lot of spoken words about it, like I am going here tonight, I am protesting this thing, or I am going to get involved with uh, you know uh, a Thanksgiving uh, program for uh, poor people in my community. Even if you don't say what you are doing overtly. Uh, the, that those kinds of experiences are definitely absorbed by the whole family. It, it is an understood, unspoken family value that gets adopted by children. So it's just a, just a, a note that uh, your kids are watching. And I, I think right. being a role model in that way is, is a cool
0: thing. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, as we're talking about how we bring attention to this issue, when you've not only been a, practic- a healthcare practitioner, but you've been somebody who's devoted a lot of time in writing and speaking... Uh, to try to raise awareness of this issue. And we're having this conversation in New York City. Uh, The Wall Street uh, stock market is almost at historic highs. Um, We've got still in 2006 or 2008 at the onset of the Great Recession, we had 26 million Americans on food stamps and it went to 46 million. It's down to only 43 million today. So we have a lot of people, even though the economy has recovered, have not caught up. And as we have this conversation in New York City, it seems Almost a little crazy that uh, a pediatrician has to be worrying about whether kids in this country literally have enough eat enough to eat to be yeah, healthy. Yeah. Let me just ask you to tell us what do you when, when these kids come to the clinics what what do you see What are they presenting with What are the issues related to you know the health issues related to growing up
1: in poverty? Well, there are many many issues. So so poverty has lots of uh, uh, overt and covert consequences for children in terms of just getting access to health care in the first place. And as a matter of fact, some of the big insurance programs for children in poverty, like Medicaid, for example, or some of the children's health insurance programs designed for near poor uh, families, you may get an insurance card, but that doesn't mean you can walk into a pediatrician's office on Park Avenue in New York and get an appointment, because you won't. Uh, so we have big provider shortages and all sorts of barriers that keep kids out of the doctor's office in, in the first place. When they do get there, a lot of chronic issues that uh, might have been nipped in the bud and taken care of much more easily when they first started now into a period of chronicity which makes the diagnosis and treatment uh, very difficult. There are children who who come in with very very late determination that they've had let's say visual problems or hearing issues or chronic asthma uh, that have already had a deleterious effect on their development or their functioning in school. So we see I'd say first of all as a category a lot of chronic problems that have been Uh, late-identified and inadequately treated. Um, We used to see a lot of ear infections that went on and on and on uh, to the point where kids would lose hearing, Um, and not so much of that anymore because there are vaccines that help uh, prevent uh, ear infections. But um, we see kids with uh, nutritionally-related problems Many of them overweight, even though they're undernourished, which is a big problem. I was going to ask you about that because I get
0: asked about obesity all the time. Bryce, we work with an anti-hunger organization, and so people assume that kids are going to look like they're hungry. But we've got so many kids in this country who are obese. Explain that to us.
1: Well, if you're poor and you have limited food choices and you live in these food deserts and there isn't a, a place where you can get affordable, nutritious food... Uh, you are sustained with uh, affordable lousy food high fat food high calorie food uh... you go into a bodega and there's mom's trying to put together uh... something to keep their kids uh... hunger satiated and it's it's junk food it's potato chips it's uh... just just the the worst kind of high calorie high fat foods that often really put the actual health of a child at risk because they're non-nutritional foods they are very low nutritional foods, so you get Calories and you bulk up, but you're bulking up with fat, and uh, that's just the worst possible thing. And children, you know, we don't see the hunger types of malnutrition evidence that we would see, let's say, in in a uh, in a developing country, but we see a different kind of uh, poor nutrition, really poor nutrition, of children who are obese, who are growing up in obese families, uh, who are taking in whatever they can take in, and then they get habituated to high fat high-calorie foods and the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and so if you say to a mom let's say you're sitting in the clinic and here's a family with, with overweight uh, parents and siblings and you got this seven-year-old who weighs you know sixty percent more than he or she should and you say you know really here's how we'd like you to think about what your kids should be eating Well, the, a there may not be access to the kind of store where those foods are and if it is they're just it's just too expensive it's unaffordable and then you're fighting uh, sort of cultural norms in what's eating, what, what are their friends eating, what are the neighbors eating. You know, it's just, it's a horrible uh, rut that children are stuck in because uh, families can't afford uh, proper foods, et cetera. And then they, they have to give something to their children and it ends up being not good. And then, of course, you were talking earlier, Bryce, about the summer time. So summers and weekends and uh, school vacations when kids don't have access to, to reasonable food in school – you know, everything sort of takes a step backward, and uh, kids end up just in a cycle of bad nutrition following bad nutrition. Uh, the one last thing that I'd like to cover,
0: Irwin, and I I'm, I'm, would like you to, I guess, help us understand the way this works is uh, there was just a study that came out of the University of Wisconsin, like other studies we've seen, that shows that kids in poverty, they correlated poverty levels and brain Same development yep. using yep. magnetic resonance imaging and things like that. They can actually study, and they found out that kids who lived below the poverty line actually had less brain volume, uh, fewer synapses, things like that that you know we just didn't have any window into before. Right. And it seems to me that one of the things that people uh, don't understand as well as they need to is that um, some of this damage becomes very difficult to reverse. So if you had a... Uh, if, if your car was out of gas, uh, it wouldn't go anywhere, but once you put the gas in, it would take off. If you're a child who's gotten to the age of three without getting the proper fuel and nutrition, um, you start feeding that child, he'll improve. Start feeding him, him or her well, they'll improve, but there's still gonna be some delays that you know gonna be very hard to catch up. How does that just work as a matter of brain science and neuroscience? Yeah, well, this is
1: uh, you're touching on something that's absolutely critically important, and by the way, it's not just nutrition. You know, they've done studies that show that toxic stress. Yeah, and children that grow up in poverty, for example, here on average, 30 million fewer words than a child who grows up in affluence by the time they're five. In other words, the language development, brain development associated with uh, language is affected. Children exposed to any kind of toxins like lead for example, early on, you can't reverse the damages done. Children who grow up undernourished, and not just from birth, but in utero through birth and uh, the first few years of life, are left with deficits. Now, sometimes these deficits can be partially compensated for, but uh, there are some things you just don't compensate for. And uh, so cognitive development, uh, mental health issues, uh, all sorts of things can be affected. And uh, I don't want to overstate this because... We don't give up on children, and uh, even if they end up with some deficits, hopefully we'll compensate with other kinds of support programs, and the kids will do as well as they can possibly do. But at
0: a minimum, it's more expensive. But it's to way do re- it's way more work.
1: expensive, and it's more expensive to diagnose, to, to do the interventions, to track the kids throughout their lives. Where. You know, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a fool's game economically because we whatever we think we might have saved by not investing in children early on is way more than compensated by excess costs or excess damage to children that ultimately affect their you know, adult lives and their overall development. So there's nothing at all good about uh, failing to do what's necessary for children. We're here, we're talking about nutrition and food, and I think among the fuels, uh, that is the primary fuel, and I think children who have been undernourished or nourished uh, improperly will end up with problems that would have been avoidable. And th- this is really tragic. There's a lot of things that happen to children that you can't avoid. There's illnesses that people contract and accidents and just mishaps of every imaginable type. The thing that uh, really troubles me so deeply is the, uh, the failure to attend to those things we can do something about. Thank you both for being here with Irwin Redliner.
0: From the Children's Health Fund, a uh, long-standing commitment with his wife, Karen Redliner, serving so many kids around this country and around the world, uh, as I know your work has taken you. And Bryce Schumann, the executive, the chef, and the um, owner and founder of Bettany Restaurant, and a champion for kids through his work on the No Kid Hungry campaign. It's great to have you both on Share Your Strength. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Add passion and stir. Big Chefs, Big Ideas is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.